Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Last time, we discussed the complex socio-political situation that had evolved in Middle Tennessee and North Alabama early in the year 1864, especially regarding the status of enslaved people and a dramatic rivalry within the Union command centered around General Dodge, headquartered at Pulaski, Tennessee. The military events of this moment in time took a back seat, and today we'll regain the foreground. The events we discuss today will plant the seeds which, in time, will flower and blossom into a harvest of destruction and defeat for the Confederacy. February and March 1864 was a time of a shifting balance of power in the Western theater, which saw Confederate influence continuing to erode in the region, building upon setbacks of the previous fall. As we saw last time, the Tennessee River had become a de facto boundary between the territories occupied by the Union Army and those held by the Confederates. Events during this time, which we will discuss today, will cause that boundary to recede even further from the Confederate perspective. Careers and fateful decisions alike will be made. This is truly a moment that will be the incubator for the final chapters of the rebellion. Though, of course, this was anything but obvious at the time. The stakes were still high on both sides, and there was absolutely no room for complacency. On February 1st, 1864, Major General Ulysses S. Grant still commanded all federal forces in the West, the so-called Military Division of the Mississippi, with his headquarters at Nashville. This territory included the Shoals and all of North Alabama north of the Tennessee River. Beneath him, in the chain of command, commanding the Department of the Tennessee, headquarters Huntsville, was William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman, at the moment, however, was not in North Alabama at all. He had rejoined the forces he left behind at Vicksburg before the Chattanooga campaign to lead an assault on the rebels under General Leonidas Polk at Meridian, Mississippi. It was at this time Sherman penned another memorable letter to his adjutant General Sawyer, still in Huntsville, which I will read in a supplement to this episode, describing how he thought secessionist Southerners ought to be treated, and, critically, observing the practical extinction of the slave labor system, the defense of which had set the whole war into motion. Meanwhile, to the east, General Thomas at Chattanooga and General Logan at Scottsboro threatened Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston at Dalton, Georgia, where he had been holed up since the retreat from Chattanooga in November. Wintering in the mountains of North Georgia must have been brutal for his men. Johnston repeatedly pleaded with Richmond for more shoes. Further upstate in East Tennessee, General Longstreet told General Robert E. Lee half of his men were without shoes in mid-January. Sam Watkins recalled that soldiers did have spirited snowball fights that winter, adding, however, quote, It was fun while it lasted, but after it was over, the soldiers were wet, cold, and uncomfortable. End quote. 
after the rather eventful month of January 1864, as we saw with a rebel surprise attack on Athens, partly foiled by a chance meeting and skirmish on Shoal Creek, and a subsequent expedition to clear the rebels out of Colbert's reserve and make the Tennessee River more secure as a front line, February 1864 was decidedly less eventful here in the Shoals. But the lack of overt action belied a lingering and building tension with a sense that it was only a matter of time before one side or the other was going to strike again. Remarkably, on February 1st and 2nd, 1864, Colonel George E. Spencer, commanding the loyal 1st Alabama Cavalry, stayed behind enemy lines at Decatur under a flag of truce, under the auspices of General Roddy. He reported his findings back to General Dodge, mostly that Roddy expected Sherman to strike at Mobile, and that he had moved his own command in the vicinity of Decatur. It is strange to realize that, apparently at times, espionage was conducted in the open on cordial terms. It is not mentioned what information Spencer may have had to offer to Roddy in exchange for the insights he gleaned. Following the attack on Athens, the Federals were eyeing rebel movements with a heightened state of alert. On Thursday, February 4th, while he was in the midst of his quarrel with Colonel Meisner, Dodge reported to Nashville, quote, There are indications of some kind of a move south of here. At all the ferries and in the streams, great activity in building boats is observed. Citizens have been suddenly stopped from crossing over, and those over there from this side retained. The report by scouts from every ferry from Decatur South is the same. It may be to cover a sudden departure. End quote. This itself was merely a condensed summary of what Colonel Phillips had reported to him in greater detail the same day. Quote, from information that I have received in reference to working on boats and the statements of citizens who were detained on the other side of the river, I am of the opinion that the enemy designed making another raid on this side of the river. For several days previous to the raid that has just taken place, no citizen living on this side who had crossed over were permitted to return to this side, and during the last four days the same strictness has been observed by them, and citizens not subject to conscription who would cross from Lauderdale County to the south side of the Tennessee have been detained there, and from information they sent across to their families clandestinely, the reason is that they have a movement in progress and wish to prevent knowledge from being had on this side of the river. I also learned that at Lane's Ferry, noise of axes and hammering as of men building and work has been heard during the past six or eight days, and I also learned that most of the enemy's force have been moved toward Tuscumbia. End quote. On February 6th, Word was starting to reach the Federals that Roddy had moved further into the East Alabama away from their front. Quote, 
A scout just in from south side of river says ferries only guarded by small picket. Johnson's regiment opposite Florence. All the rest of Roddy's command have gone up towards Larkin's ferry to oppose those officers said to be coming there. End quote. The next day, General Thomas reported that forces under Roddy attacked U.S. forces, including loyal home guards, at Lebanon in DeKalb County and retreated back towards Gadsden. And on February 11th, Phillips also reported that most of Roddy's force at their front had gone into East Alabama in the vicinity of Gadsden. By this time, Joseph E. Johnston was becoming increasingly concerned by federal movements at his own front, and with Longstreet's cavalry entangled in East Tennessee, he needed Roddy to cover his flank. There seems to be some disagreement, though, about whether Roddy was to go east in support of Johnston or west in support of Polk in east-central Mississippi. General Ruggles wrote to Roddy from Columbus, Mississippi on February 15th, quote, I am informed that it is expected that you will cooperate with Generals Forrest and Golston and my own command against the enemy in his reported movements from the Northwest, end quote. Yet, two days later, General Johnston told Confederate President Jefferson Davis he was expecting Roddy himself. Roddy only received positive orders on February 25th from Johnston's chief of staff, William McCall, stating, quote, Proceed at once to Dalton. In the opinion of General Johnston, the delay in your movement is inexcusable. End quote. Johnston may have found it inexcusable, but from reading the official records, I find it entirely understandable that Roddy was unable to place his command at two different locations, 270 miles apart at the same time. On Sunday, February 14th, Sherman's army entered Meridian, and Leonidas Polk retreated east to Demopolis, Alabama. The victory was incomplete, however, for a column of Sherman's army, led by Brigadier General William Soy Smith, tasked with destroying the rebel cavalry commanded by Nathan Bedford Forrest, was instead driven back and routed near Okalona, Mississippi. Sherman was scathing in his condemnation of Smith's failure. To quote Sherman from his memoirs, quote, the object of the Meridian expedition was to strike the roads inland, so to paralyze the rebel forces that we could take from the defense of the Mississippi River the equivalent of a corps of 20,000 men to be used in the next Georgia campaign. And this was actually done. At the same time, I wanted to destroy General Forrest, who, with an irregular force of cavalry, was constantly threatening Memphis and the river above, as well as our routes of supply in Middle Tennessee. In this, we failed utterly, because General W. Soy Smith did not fulfill his orders, which were clear and specific. Instead of starting at the date ordered, February 1st, he did not leave Memphis till the 11th, waiting for Waring's brigade that was icebound near Columbus, Kentucky. And then, when he did start, he allowed General Forrest to head him off and to defeat him with an inferior force near West Point below Okalona on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. Of course, I did not and could not approve of his conduct, and I know that he yet chafes under the censure. 
I had set so much store on his part of the project that I was disappointed, and so reported officially to General Grant. General Smith never regained my confidence as a soldier, though I still regard him as a most accomplished gentleman and a skillful engineer. Since the close of the war, he has appealed to me to relieve him of that censure, but I could not do it, because it would falsify history. End quote. The same day that Sherman entered Meridian, Dodge decided to take advantage of the apparent absence of rebel cavalry on the south side of the river and send across a scouting party led by his trusty Colonel Phillips. This was to be more of a stealthy reconnaissance mission than a full-scale raid, as Dodge explained in his instructions. Quote, Try to get over. If you cannot ford, see if you can find a boat to cross a few men in. If you cross, get the ferry boats on this side and secure them. If you can ford, cross with such a force as you deem sufficient, and ascertain the force on the other side. It will not do to go far from your base if you find an enemy of any force over there. I want to find out to a certainty what there is, and I would also like to get hold of some ferry boats. This rain may cause the river to rise. I would ford very early in the morning and get back the same day. End quote. Short of actually crossing over in person, Phillips was already watching quite attentively for any rebel movements across the river. His correspondence with General Dodge in the second week of February reveals not only the tense circumspection along the front line, but also the remarkable network of informants among the local population who were indispensable for cutting through the fog of war. All of the following dispatches from Phillips to Dodge are dated February 14th at Athens. Quote, I have scouting parties today along the river from the mouth of the limestone to the mouth of the elk to bring all the information they can procure in reference to the force of the enemy at the several points picketed. I also have a party at the ford who are instructed to try the ford and see as to the practicability of crossing a column and will have their report tonight. I am of the opinion that the river can be forded. James H. Gordon, a cotton buyer who was captured near Bainbridge on the ninth instant, was taken to Tuscumbia and on Friday arrived in Decatur. He escaped from Decatur yesterday morning. His report is the same as the last sent to you in reference to movements and character of the enemy. Gordon was sworn into the service at Tuscumbia as a conscript and was to be sent to the 4th Tennessee Infantry near Dalton. Gordon says he saw only 25 or 30 at Tuscumbia. He saw 5 or 6 more at Leeton. He saw 10 or 12 at Cortland and a few at Decatur. Bainbridge is picketed by 10 or 12 men, a small force at Lambs Ferry. These are all he knew of. Roddy was said to have gone to Decatur. The Negro boy, Buck, whom I was talking with in your presence when you were here, left Decatur yesterday afternoon, arrived here this evening. Information I get of him is the same as I have already telegraphed. He states further he heard Falconet say he expected to leave there before many days. End quote. 
Phillips did order a reconnoitering party to cross. He doesn't say exactly where, but my guess is somewhere at Elk River Shoals. He explained, quote, The river was forded about one-third the way across today by my reconnoitering party. They found a picket on the second island. The fording will, if even practicable, be difficult. End quote. It's interesting to note that the rebels were encamping on the islands in the middle of the river, using them as guard posts. These islands are all underwater today, submerged by the Wilson and Wheeler dams of the TVA. Colonel Phillips soon realized that crossing the river on foot or on horseback, which is, by the way, what is meant by fording, was not possible because of the high water, as he told General Dodge on February 17th, quote, I could not ford the Tennessee River. It is rising quite fast now. I therefore have to get boats to cross. I now have six or eight large canoes. I will have by tomorrow night two flats that will be able to cross from 60 to 100 men at a time. I would require that two pieces of artillery be sent to me to cover my crossing and return. Without artillery, I would not consider it advisable to attempt to cross with my horses, and without horses, I do not think that I could gain a very accurate and reliable information as to the force of the enemy that might be any distance from the river." End quote. Two days later, on the 19th, a tentative attempt by Phillips to cross the river in canoes and flatboats revealed an increased presence of Confederates on islands and on the southern shore, and resulted in a small skirmish. Phillips believed that they were intending to cross over themselves and destroy his boats and means of crossing. This wasn't the only rebel attempt at crossing. Though they do not seem to have made it clear across to the northern shore, the islands in the river were easy enough for the rebels to reach unopposed. Phillips reported the next day, February 20th, quote, Citizens report that four or five hundred rebels crossed to this side of the river near the mouth of Blue Water at the Cane Islands. They say that they have considerable stock on these islands, end quote. By stock, he means livestock, of course. And the same day, another rebel attempt to cross was thwarted by Philip's men. Quote, My pickets at Brown's Ferry yesterday afternoon drove the enemy from a large flatboat, which will carry twenty horses, captured the boat, and brought it over, and have tied it up on this side. End quote. Meanwhile, at this time, further downriver in western Lauderdale County, where the military situation was less tense, regular commercial traffic appears to have resumed on the river, though not without red tape and suspicion. On February 16th, Dodge complained to General Grant, quote, there is a steamboat running on the Tennessee River dealing in cotton, paying salt, sugar, coffee, and gold. It runs to Eastport and Waterloo. On the boat is a relation of General Roddy, and the boat has his protection. The points it runs to are all in rebel lines. End quote. Dodge's complaint was almost immediately addressed by Lieutenant Commander James Shirk, writing from the steamer USS Piosta at Clifton, Tennessee. The Piosta and her crew were tasked with protecting Union commerce and military operations on the Lower Tennessee. 
Shirk explained the situation which had drawn the critique of General Dodge. Quote, the steamboat referred to as the S.C. Baker, owned by Halliday Brothers of Cairo and William H. Cherry and Company of Memphis. These gentlemen had proper permits to purchase cotton in the counties bordering on the river in the states of Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama from the supervising agents of the Treasury. The supplies that the S.C. Baker took up the river were all distributed under the personal supervision of a Treasury agent. End quote. He further explained that all of these transactions were supervised directly by agents of the Treasury Department with positive orders that no supplies be distributed where they might fall into the hands of rebels. Quote, the officers commanding convoys on this river are attentive in a high degree to their duty, and I know that they would not permit any violation of any order or regulation of the government. The baker is now in the river again with supplies permitted by the collector of customs in Paducah, Kentucky, and was cleared for Florence, Alabama. She is now at Craven's Landing, about 10 miles below Savannah. I have directed Acting Volunteer Lieutenant E.M. King, commanding U.S. steamer Key West, who is convoying her, not to go any farther up the river, to seize her if any relative of General Roddy is on board, or if anyone on board has a permit to trade given by General Roddy, and to take her to Cairo. End quote. He then concludes explaining how crucial it is to allow ships like the Baker to be allowed to trade in North Alabama. Quote, Supplies were permitted by General Sherman to be sent up the river partly upon my representation of the extreme necessity of the families living on the banks of the river, many of whom I know to be loyal to the government at times when Union men were hunted like wild beasts. I shall do all in my power to prevent supplies of any kind from falling into the hands of rebels. I have certain information that the rebel Roddy has gone with his command into the state of Georgia. There may be a few stragglers from his force on the west or southern side of the Tennessee River, but I believe that there are no rebels in arms near the places where the baker has been trading. I have directed Acting Volunteer Lieutenant King to afford the S.C. Baker every facility in buying cotton on the lower part of the river, provided he finds her to be all right. End quote. Curiously, exactly two weeks later, on March 2nd, Eliza B. Weekly, a prominent citizen of Florence, mentions in her diary having the opportunity to trade with a boat at Waterloo. Quote, Dr. Hargraves came up this morning and told me the boat was at Waterloo, end quote. She wanted to bring company along and had to make arrangements for transportation, which seems to have taken some effective coordinating. Quote, I sent for Mr. Hooks to bring the wagon and went on home so I could send for Mary Posey. She sent back and said the omnibus was not at home and that her father was not there. When I went up to see H. Foster, loaned her one horse to put in her wagon, and will go with her. End quote. Though the journey from Florence to Waterloo is only 23 miles, it appears to have been quite an undertaking for Mrs. Weekly. The next day, Thursday, March 3rd, 1864, she writes, quote, 
Mary Posey came in before daylight this morning to go to the boat. I went with H. Foster. We left about seven o'clock and got to Chickasaw Landing about two o'clock. Stayed all night with Mr. Witherspoon. Mary Posey broke down just before she got to Second Creek. End quote. And the next day, Friday, quote, We started to the boat this morning before sunrise and took breakfast on the boat, and then went up to Smith's Landing and finished trading and started for home, got as far as Mr. Hewitt's and stayed all night. Mr. Wright promised to bring my things from the boat. End quote. She arrived home the next day at one thirty in the afternoon, remarking, quote, Did not bring anything except a piece domestic. End quote. Another person who had experience trading with boats near Waterloo was the free person of color Caroline Robinson, whom we've met already. She testified that she and her stepfather, Woodson Armistead, split the cost of a barrel of molasses, $20 in total, which they purchased from one Captain Donnelly at Eastport. These experiences do show that Although supplies, especially refined, manufactured, imported goods, were certainly scarce in North Alabama, there were still some opportunities to procure them, if you had the means. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss a huge and fateful shift in the Union High Command and action on the south side of the river as Union forces take their turn going on the offensive. Please stay with us. As February turned to March, 1864, General Grant was promoted by an act of Congress and presidential appointment to the revived rank of Lieutenant General, a rank previously held only by George Washington. Grant was summoned to Virginia. He recalled that originally he had planned to stay in the West even with his promotion, but after seeing the situation in Virginia with his own eyes, he concluded, quote, it was plain that here was the point for the commanding general to be. End quote. His replacement, now commanding all federal forces in the West as head of the military division of the Mississippi, was none other than William Tecumseh Sherman. Upon receiving news of his promotion, which he relayed in rather more a tone of sullen gravitas than of self-adulation, General Grant wrote to Sherman on March 4th, giving the thanks and credit for his own successes largely to him. Quote, Whilst I have been eminently successful in this war, and at least gaining the confidence of the public, no one feels more than me how much of this success is due to the energy, skill, and the harmonious putting forth of that energy and skill of those who it has been my good fortune to have occupying a subordinate position under me. There are many officers to whom these remarks are applicable to a greater or less degree, proportionate to their ability as soldiers. But what I want is to express my thanks to you and McPherson as the men to whom, above all others, I feel indebted for whatever I have had of success. How far your advice and suggestions have been of assistance, you know. How far your execution of whatever has been given to you to do entitles you to the reward I am receiving, you cannot know as well as me. 
I feel all the gratitude this letter would express, giving it the most flattering construction. End quote. He signed the letter, Your Friend U.S. Grant. Sherman, however, did not tolerate his friend's tasteful modesty and self-abasement. His letter in response, dated March 10th, is fond, affectionate, humorous, decisive, and full of confidence and gusto. Allow me, please, to quote it extensively here. Quote, you do yourself injustice and us too much honor in assigning to us too large a share of the merits which have led to your high advancements. I know you approve the friendship I have ever professed to you and will permit me to continue as heretofore to manifest it on all proper occasions. You are now Washington's legitimate successor and occupy a position of almost dangerous elevation. But if you can continue as heretofore to be yourself, simple, honest, and unpretending, you will enjoy through life the respect and love of friends and the homage of millions of human beings that will award you a large share in securing to them and their descendants a government of law and stability. Until you had Juan Donaldson, I confess, I was almost cowed by the terrible array of anarchical elements that presented themselves at every point. But that admitted the ray of light which I have followed ever since. I believe you are as brave, patriotic, and just as the great prototype Washington, as unselfish, kind-hearted, and honest a man should be. But the chief characteristic is the simple faith in success you have always manifested, which I can liken to nothing else than the faith a Christian has in a Savior. This faith gave you victory at Shiloh and Vicksburg. Also, when you have completed your last preparations, you go into battle without hesitation, as at Chattanooga. No doubts, no reserves. And I tell you, it was this that made us act with confidence. I knew, wherever I was, that you thought of me, and if I got in a tight place, you would come, if alive. My only points of doubt were in your knowledge of grand strategy and of books of science and history, but I confess your common sense seems to have supplied all these. Now, as to future. Don't stay in Washington. Halleck is better qualified than you to stand the buffets of intrigue and policy. Come west. Take to yourself the whole Mississippi Valley. Let us make it dead sure, and I tell you, the Atlantic slopes and Pacific shores will follow its destiny as sure as the limbs of a tree live or die with the main trunk. Here lies the seat of the coming empire, and from the west, when our task is done, we will make short work of Charleston and Richmond and the impoverished coast of the Atlantic. Your sincere friend, W.T. Sherman. End quote. Sherman and Grant rendezvoused on Friday, March 18th at Nashville. Sherman accompanied Grant on his journey to Washington as far as Cincinnati, as Grant recalled, quote, so that we could talk over the matters about which I wanted to see him without losing any more time from my new command than was necessary. 
The first point which I wished to discuss was particularly about the cooperation of his command with mine when the spring campaign should commence. End quote. Sherman and Grant here conceived of a coming spring campaign, which, with their combined efforts, would deal a heavy blow into the Confederate heartland and the South's ability to sustain the rebellion. Sherman's task was crystal clear to General Grant. Quote, there could have been no difference of opinion as to the first duty of the armies of the military division of the Mississippi. Johnston's army was the first objective, and that important railroad center, Atlanta, the second. End quote. Henceforth, that plan now set in motion to launch a campaign against Johnston's Confederates at Dalton with the aim of eventually capturing Atlanta will dominate all federal operations in the Tennessee Valley. This is a moment in the war where the curtain fell on one act of the drama and was about to rise on a new climactic and final act. For the time being, however, there were still smaller irons in the fire, so to speak, closer to home, specifically Dodge's objective to take and hold Decatur to secure railroad operations from Nashville through to Huntsville and Chattanooga. On March 7th, Dodge gave detailed instructions to one Colonel Fuller to cross the Tennessee River stealthily under cover of darkness and rendezvous with Colonel Phillips in preparation for an assault on Decatur. Quote, in crossing the Tennessee River tonight, you will follow the following general directions, altering them if in your judgment necessary. First, the 63rd and 43rd Ohio regiments will take the boats at 12 o'clock at night, loading from right to left each company and regiment by itself. The boats, in moving down the river, will keep place in column same as loaded and hug this shore. When they cross, they will move by the left flank and, if possible, strike the shore in a regular line at one time. The troops will immediately unload, form in line, and take possession of the high bank of the river. The oarsmen will be held as a protection to the boats, and as soon as a lodgment is safely secured, one half of the boats will be sent directly across the river to bring over the remainder of the command. No firing will be allowed under any circumstances, and after landing, unless attacked. Should the boats fail to land in proper order, the troops will form as they land, until it is ascertained they have a secure lodgment when they can be changed. As soon as it is light enough to see, the troops will move to the rear of Decatur, connecting with Lieutenant Colonel Phillips and covering all the roads except the Cortland Road. End quote. You may remember Dodge had been calling for the taking of Decatur since virtually the first moment he took command at his Pulaski headquarters. Now, with the railroad nearing completion and events in preparation for the spring campaign unfolding rapidly, the moment to strike at last had come. The next day, March 8th, Dodge reported from Decatur itself, stating rather anticlimactically, quote, we occupied this place at daylight, and we hold it, end quote. In his diary, he added, quote, took Decatur at daylight, a few rebs killed, end quote. 
Dodge remained in Decatur all day on the 9th and went back to Athens that night, reporting in his diary that the day was very rainy. The operation did not necessarily go off without a hitch. The worsening weather conditions made crossing the river challenging. Colonel Fuller reported an incident which was described in this memo. Quote, Captain Lowe, 9th Illinois, was left to cross the balance of Colonel Phillips' command with directions to follow on the Cortland Road. Wind was high, and it took him a day to cross. Squad of the enemy attacked his picket, capturing one man. He returned to Decatur, gave Captain Lowe permission to go up the river and gobble the picket, but that he should be back in position to support Colonel Phillips with all the 9th." The Confederates, naturally, did not appear content to roll out the red carpet for this spur of occupation. Dodge asked for a status update on the whereabouts of the 9th Ohio Cavalry, adding, quote, I could use them in good advantage now south of the Tennessee River, force there in my front rapidly increasing, end quote. Nor was Dodge content to rest on the loyals of his achievement, reporting to General Grant on March 11th, quote, After taking Decatur, I pushed my forces out under Lieutenant Colonel Phillips. He captured Cortland, driving the enemy out, and followed them up, crossing the mountains, capturing Moulton. We took a number of prisoners, a large amount of stores, and a large quantity of artillery and rifle ammunition, also 100 sacks of salt, stock, etc., End quote. Dodge appears to have initially relayed only the good parts, shall we say, because later reports indicate that the expedition against Moulton was met with heavy resistance and repulsed. Dodge explained on March 21st, quote, Colonel Phillips has just got in, struck the enemy three miles south of Moulton, two regiments of infantry and 1,000 cavalry. After a sharp fight fell back. Rebels followed for 14 miles. We lost four killed and ten wounded. We killed and wounded a number of the enemy and brought in a number of prisoners, among them a captain of artillery belonging to Forrest. Colonel Phillips says part of Forrest's command is between Tuscumbia and Eastport, and some report he intends an attack on Decatur, some that he intends crossing the river." End quote. One of Forrest's men in the valley who fought Colonel Phillips near Moulton was Colonel William Johnson of the 4th Alabama Cavalry. Johnson reported a version of events of the skirmish at Moulton far more favorable to the rebels. Quote, I met one of his mounted regiments, 500 strong, on the 21st instant near this place with 200 men, routing him completely and chasing him 10 miles, killing 10 and wounding about 40 and capturing 8. End quote. Johnson also reported that Dodge's, quote, infantry are fortifying and the cavalry are scouring the country. They have a pontoon bridge across the river at Decatur, end quote. Another rebel commander gave his interpretation of the same events, writing from Russellville on March 28th. This was James Jackson, Jr., a native of Lauderdale County. His father, the elder James Jackson, built the famed Forks of Cypress Plantation. James Jackson, Jr. was colonel of the 27th Alabama Infantry and already a seasoned veteran, having been present at First Manassas and captured at Fort Donelson. 
Jackson wrote of his experience meeting Colonel Phillips in battle at Moulton, quote, I have the honor to inform you that, in compliance with Special Orders Number 62, I started to North Alabama with my command. Seventy miles above Tuscaloosa, I received an official dispatch from Colonel Moreland that 6,000 Federals had crossed at Decatur. 3,000 more were crossing at Florence. I fell back ten miles to where forage could be procured and sent officers forward to ascertain the enemy's intentions. They reported only 700 cavalry outside of Decatur. I then moved the command up to Mount Hope, 32 miles west of Decatur, to procure supplies. Ascertaining the enemy's force to be about 2,500 infantry and 700 cavalry, and our cavalry having left the valley, I determined to fall back to Smithville for safety. At Bear Creek, I received an order from General Forrest to get all the cavalry and, with the regiments of infantry under my command, drive the enemy from the valley. On the 21st, I met the enemy near Moulton, about 200 strong, and drove them into Decatur, killing seven or eight, wounding several, and capturing three. Our loss, one killed, one badly, and several slightly wounded. Our cavalry under Colonel Johnson, about 300 strong, were engaged. The infantry were not able to get up. Being satisfied we could accomplish nothing more, I fell back to this place, and am now giving the men short furloughs to visit their homes, and think they will bring in several men on their return. There are a large number of men in the country, and should the enemy recross the river, I am satisfied we will be able to fill up the regiment very rapidly. End quote. It is interesting that Colonel Jackson expresses such confidence that he can fill a regiment very rapidly, largely, I assume, though he doesn't come out and say it explicitly, with conscripts, because General Dodge reported on the 11th to General Grant, quote, I commenced raising a regiment of Alabama cavalry on March 1st from refugees under instructions from General Grant, and in compliance with instructions from the War Department, turned it into an infantry regiment under the control of experienced veterans, end quote. Fulfilling his prediction he made back on January 12th to General Sherman that, quote, if we could make a lodgment at Decatur, it would give an outlet to a large number of Union people who are seeking our lines and who would join our Alabama regiments, end quote. At this time, while action had heated up on the south side of the river, back in Lauderdale County it was apparently a rather quiet moment, for now. Major Esther Brooks wrote to Dodge from Florence on March 11th, quote, I have the honor to respectfully report that everything is remarkably quiet at this time. Word has not been received as yet from Colonel Phillips. Every approach, and especially the ferries, are closely watched. There is certainly no rebel force on this side of the river. What few have been here have suddenly withdrawn, and the boats on the south side either destroyed or guarded with a weakened force. Probably the report of Colonel Phillips' movements. Native troops from Clifton report gunboats there and transports. End quote. That last sentence about native troops from Clifton is most likely referring to Colonel Thomas Jefferson Sipers, 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry. 
Seipert recalled in his memoir that while they were stationed at Clifton, Tennessee in the first months of 1864, it was rather more eventful than Estabrook's reported from Florence. Quote, we had a considerable amount of trouble with guerrillas during the first month of February and March. The rebel citizens of the surrounding country always kept them posted in regard to our strength and condition. End quote. It is remarkable, then, to realize the character of warfare that Seipert here describes. You have native Tennesseans and Alabamians posted in a small southern town under the leadership of a northerner, Colonel Murphy, facing off against unaffiliated partisans, guerrillas, who also hailed from the same communities who are aided by local people in harassing and impeding the Unionist efforts. It was a deeply interpersonal and homegrown conflict. Seipert does not detail what considerable troubles his regiment faced from guerrillas. He spends more time railing against the local population, who encouraged their sons, apparently, to return to the Confederate army, even after they had taken the Oath of Allegiance. Quote, I captured several men with the Oath of Allegiance in their pockets, and they told me that they never would have re-entered the rebel service but for the importunities of their parents. They urged them on the falsehood that the Southern Confederacy was an established fact, and that they must go back to the army or bring everlasting disgrace on themselves and their families when the cause of Southern independence was acknowledged by the world. End quote. On March 4, 1864, Seipert says he was elected as circuit court clerk for Wayne County, explaining, quote, I, however, did not serve in that capacity, as my term of service in the Army had not expired, nor were there any courts held in Wayne County for 18 months after the election, end quote. Unknown to Seipert, in a month's time, he would face the most harrowing experience of his life, and very nearly would not survive to tell his tale. By Friday, March 25th, 1864, Sherman was back from his conference with General Grant at Cincinnati, and immediately set about getting himself up to speed on the state of his armies in the Tennessee Valley. Sherman first inspected the front line in North Alabama, visiting Dodge at Pulaski, and then rejoining his personal staff at Huntsville. His meeting with Grant concerning the spring campaign was still vividly fresh in his mind, and logistical preparations for an assault on Johnston's Confederates at Dalton were consuming his attention. After proceeding east all the way to Knoxville, General Sherman gathered his three subordinate generals at Chattanooga and began contemplating the path before them. There was Major General George H. Thomas, who had earned the nickname the Rock of Chickamauga, leading the Army of the Cumberland. Major General John M. Schofield with the Army of the Ohio, and Sherman's friend, in his old job, leading the Army of the Tennessee, Major General James McPherson. One of their number would not survive the year. 
Joseph E. Johnston, for his part, was beginning to display the characteristic which will notoriously define his performance throughout the remainder of his tenure as head of the Army of Tennessee in the upcoming spring campaign, the hallmark of which is a philosophy I might describe as, the best offense is a good defense. After receiving a letter from erstwhile commander of his own army, Braxton Bragg, stating that President Davis, quote, desired a forward movement by the forces under your command, end quote, for the purposes of dislodging the Federals from East Tennessee and, quote, reclaiming the provision country of Tennessee and Kentucky, end quote, Johnston responded with the most pernicious kind of pessimism, pessimism rooted in undeniable truth. Quote, Grant's return to Tennessee indicates that he will retain that command for the present at least. He certainly will not do so to stand on the defensive. I therefore believe that he will advance as soon as he can with the greatest force he can raise. We cannot estimate the time he may require for preparation and should consequently put ourselves in condition for successful resistance as soon as possible." End quote. He framed this strategy as their best bet for success. Quote, I believe fully, however, that Grant will be ready to act before we can be, and that if we are ready to fight him on our own ground, we shall have a very plain course and every chance of success. For that, we should make exactly such preparations as you indicate for the forward movement, except that I would have the troops assembled here without delay to repulse Grant's attack, and then make our own, should the enemy not take the initiative, do it ourselves. Our first object, then, should be your proposition to bring on a battle on this side of the Tennessee." End quote. In other words, Johnston fully expected to fight Grant's forces on Grant's schedule in Georgia and had no plans to invade Tennessee, much less Kentucky. His predilection for withdrawing and forcing the enemy to come to him, ostensibly to save his troops and resources from a costly offensive maneuver, will have disastrous implications later on that summer and help to seal the fate of Atlanta and the rebellion. By the end of March 1864, there had now taken place a fateful and monumental coalescence between Generals Grant and Sherman. The Tennessee Valley had been their proving ground, where first they rose through the ranks, sharpening their acumen with bloody experience and gaining notoriety for their celebrated successes. And now they were using the very same Tennessee Valley as a stage to launch a piercing campaign into the heartland of the Confederacy, the famous Atlanta campaign, and the subsequent march to the sea. Sherman set May 1st, 1864 as the date when all should be in place and ready to move. Join us next time as we discuss April 1864 and the rising action in the Tennessee Valley ahead of Sherman's Atlanta campaign as the war enters its fourth, final, and most horrendously destructive year. And thank you so much for joining me.